right, before we get into Acts chapter 2, I want to make a statement that um, I am going to be making many times, probably over the next several weeks as we uh, go through the book of Acts and even some things in 1 John, uh, some other uh, things I'm planning on covering. I want to get something in everyone's head, all right? This is something you need to get in your head, and it's going to help you a lot. And that is, when it comes to preaching, it is okay for us to take stories from the Bible and uh, use them for life application. We're actually supposed to do that. But did you know there are some stories in the Bible that we have preached just life application things for so long that it's like it's been forgotten what the original intent of that scripture was. To where it's like it's only, I've never even heard it preached before. And it's very important that we always make sure while it's okay to make life application, we always want to know what the original intent was. Because what's happening, what I'm seeing happening, I, 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 you know, people, they get confused doctrinally about from certain passages because they're trying to make, uh, they're trying to make that passage about something the Bible is not trying to explain. But the problem is we've used it as an illustration for so long that people think, no, this is a doctrinal passage about this particular subject. And it's not. It, it, it never was. That is not why. So, for example, in the parables, Jesus, when he would give parables, he is, he is using those parables as an illustration for a very specific truth that he was trying to get across to people that he was talking to right then and that day. We often take those parables... And we use them to illustrate something completely different. For example, the prodigal son. It is very rare that you will hear somebody use the story of the prodigal son to teach what Jesus was trying to teach. It, it almost never happens. You know, we use it for personal application. And it's not technically wrong, but then the problem is somebody comes along and they preach it as it's originally intended and then everybody looks at them like they're a heretic. Like, what, what's going on? And... Uh, and so, you know, there might be things said in this, and even in future weeks, there's going to be kind of a little bit of a shock to people, uh, especially on some other subjects. But I just want to get that in everybody's head. So what I just, basically what I said about, you know, understanding the original intent, you're going to hear that referenced a lot. And we got to get this too, because I'm telling you, everybody in here has heard a lot of preaching on Acts 2 before. But rarely does anybody preach, you know, what it was originally showing us. We're all, and we, we got to watch out for that. So anyway, let's go ahead and start going in, uh, through this in verse 1. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. So this event that we are about to read is an event that was prophesied. They were given instruction in the previous chapter to tarry in Jerusalem until the Comforter came. So what's about to happen is something that Jesus said was going to come, and he told them, stay there. Until it comes. Now, when Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem until it comes, did he give them an outline of some things they were supposed to do in order to make the Spirit come? No, he just said, go there and wait for it. That's what he did. Now, what everybody preaches from this, okay, I've probably kind of done it a few times myself in the past. I thought of a message I preached a long time ago. I was like, I think I did that one time. What everybody preaches from this is they preach Acts 2 like this is a blueprint for what we need to do to get the Holy Ghost to show up. To basically conjure up another event 
like we see here. But folks, what we see happen right here, it's not going to happen again. What happened, what, ha what we're about to read about, this was a major event and it's not going to happen again like it did here. It, it, it's, it's not going to happen. There's nothing, this is not an outline for what we need to do to get the Holy Ghost to show up. Now, I think if we're all in one accord, that's going to help the Holy Spirit move among us. I think if we're all here, that's going to be good. But how many times have you ever preached to me you know, if we'd all just get here? Holy Ghost probably would have shown up. Some of y'all laid out of church last week to watch a ball game. That's not what they did back then. They were all there, all 120 of them. That's not really what we're supposed to do. Okay? I'd like for y'all to be in church, but I probably shouldn't use that. And I, I don't want to waste a lot of time talking about some of the goofy stuff you hear from this, but I promise you will hear this. And it says in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And let me tell you, people getting emotional at a camp meeting, when we're all with one accord, man, we was all with one accord, we was all in one place, we was having a prayer meeting, we had a prayer meeting all night. We was all ready to go. And let me tell you something, folks. We were sitting there in the service, and a breeze from another world came in. Now, that sounds biblical. Have you ever heard that before? A breeze from another world? Man, you know, this, is what, you know, this is what preachers do. They can't get the breeze to come in, so they kind of do this. You know, when the preacher gets going, what do they do? We're fanning the flames, amen? Black preacher's on fire. These preachers are on fire. Cloven tongues of fire on that. You know what? I, I get what they're trying to do. Nobody's being literal here, but you know what they're all trying to do? They're all trying to connect an emotional fit everybody got into with what we see in Acts chapter 2. That's, that's not technically right, folks. Uh, that's not what this passage is intended to do. And, and we've forgotten that. So, these things literally happen. Okay? I think a breeze from another world literally did go through. And it was, it was one that you know, would have blown this paper off the pulpit. You know, it was, I, I think it was real. You know, I, I, I believe there were actual cloven tongues of fire above them. It says, verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it doesn't say in an unknown tongue, but in other tongues. And you all know about this. We're not going to spend a lot of time debunking tongue talking, the Pentecostal tongue talking of today. We're not going to, we're not going to talk a lot about that. We all know better than that here. But it says in verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now I want you to notice in verse 5 what it says. Who was there? Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Something that people often say from this is they assume because there's people of all these different languages that we've got people from all over the world, meaning all these different groups and Gentiles, and we got racial diversity and everything's going on great, and you know it's all politically correct, right? No, it was all Jews. It was all. Jews that were here, it says there was dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, uh, I read that verse, verse 7, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia and in Pontus and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, in Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, 
Jews and proselytes. So some of them, too, they would be people who they weren't necessarily Jews, but they were proselytes, so they became Jews, which was something that they were able to do back then. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So God wanted the good news of the gospel to get to the whole world. And it makes sense that he did it on a day when people from all over the world were around. God wanted the gospel getting out. And this was a very effective way. And God, he, it's amazing how God, the means that God often chooses to use, because God wants truth getting out. And a lot of times, too, people's like, well, you know, show me that verse in the Bible where it says the King James Bible was, you know, going to be, or the, the Bible is going to be preserved in the English language in 1611. Well, I can't show you the verse, but I can show you where God typically does things in the most effective way. And it was like God saw what was coming with the English language. And you know what? Who has done more to get the gospel out in the last 400 years than English speaking people? You know, it makes sense that God used that language because that would be the most effective and it has been effective. So, um, you know, that's another subject for another day. I preached on that a while back. But here's an important question. And again, you know, were these people that were from all over the world, you know, who were they? And I do believe that they probably, if not all of them, but at least most of them, were Jews. Now, why were they there? Why were they there? Now, turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. This is something that we... Uh, often take for granted. There's a lot of things in the New Testament we that we just kind of take for granted and we don't pay attention to. But you know the details are in the Bible for a reason. But if we go to Luke 23 verse 15, it says, "And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, ye shall number fifty days." And ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Ye shall bring out of your habitation two wave loaves of two tenth deals, and they shall be a fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven that are the first fruits unto the Lord. And ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offering, even an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So basically what we're seeing right here that uh, in the Old Testament was referred to is the Feast of Weeks and they would have they would have their first fruit offering that they would do where the first fruit that they would get they would bring that in to the priest and that was a sacrifice they do there and then they would number seven Sabbaths after that seven weeks which is 49 days and then on the morrow so after that which would be the 50th day which is where we get Penta like 50 or Pentecost and they would have uh, that other offering. And this was something, this was a major feast that um, wherever you were from, you were supposed to come to Jerusalem for this. We see when you look at those Old Testament feasts, they were supposed to be three times in a year when they presented themselves before the Lord in the city where he was going to choose to put his name, which ended up being Jerusalem. It says in Deuteronomy 16, verse 9, seven weeks thou shalt number unto thee, Begin to number the seven weeks for such time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with the tribute of a freewill offering of thine hand. And thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God according, to, according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite that is within thy gates and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there 
And thou shalt remember thou wast abominant in Egypt and shall observe and do these statutes. So right there, we see that this was, this was an event Jews from all over the world were supposed to be at. Now, and we know during this time, they were scattered all over the world because of the Roman oppression. This had been going on for years too, from back when they got taken captive in Babylon. They never all came back. And then, you know, then you had the Greeks and then you had, uh, you know, so Rome took over. So they were scattered all over. But at the same time too, they kind of had some religious freedom during that time. And, you know, they would let them go back uh, to that land. And so again, this is a great time for God to do a major move among the Jews, because you know what? He still wants them to get saved. And so sure enough, he shows up, the Holy Spirit comes through and empowers the disciples. And then God is doing all these miracles. And it's not because the Jews require a sign. He's doing these miracles just to prove that what they were doing was of God. Because obviously the scriptures were very important. And, you know, but things were changing and so God would do, God did these miracles with the apostles to prove that this was legit, what they were saying, the things that they were teaching. And so, uh, there were, there were, there may have been other people that weren't Jews, but you know what? There's no evidence. In fact, it's evidence to the contrary that anybody but Jews got saved during this time. And so, it, and, and I think proof of that is in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus, he is Lord of all. This was after Cornelius, an Italian, gets saved. Peter was surprised by this. This is, this is probably a few years later. And so this was not something that they were expect, expecting. Proof, too, you know, a good way to, you know, one of the ways I like to prove that Abraham Lincoln did not have the Civil War to free the slaves is the fact that everyone was mad at him when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. His entire cabinet was angry with him. A lot of the Union soldiers were angry with him. Every, you know why? Because they didn't know that's what it was all about. Okay? And you know what? Proof that the church at first was only accepting Jews and didn't realize it was for the Gentiles too is because a lot of people were all ticked off when they found out Gentiles were getting saved. And look what it says in chapter 11, verse 1. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. What? Yes. And when Peter was come to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. Like, what are you doing? Let it, you know, and and there, was, there was some tolerance to a certain extent with some of the unbelieving Jews at first. They were, they were kind of, and I've talked about this before, they were kind of like another sect of Judaism almost. But when they started letting Gentiles be a part of the group, it's like, all right, you guys have crossed the line here. And that's when they really got ticked, because this is, this is a new thing going on. Saying, thou winnest in to men uncircumcised and didst eat with them? This was surprising to them. Verse 15, and as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as it on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye should be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So you know what? After Peter 
speaks to them. You know what? Then they finally shut up. They're like, all right. I guess, I guess Jews are getting, or Gentiles are getting saved. So, I show you all this just to show that, no, the, these people getting saved in, in, at Pentecost in this day, these were Jews. God is doing a work amongst the Jews. during the, He has not started going to the Gentiles yet. Now, here's where we make a mistake. It's, you can go to the Gospels, you can look at things Jesus said, and it's very clear God intended to go to the Gentiles. For example, I mean, John 3.16 makes that clear. Luke 2, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Okay? It, was, it was spelled out to them just like the resurrection was spelled out to them. But God did not open their eyes to, to, to these things. It was not revealed by the Holy Ghost, the truth about these things, until later. And remember this too, because we're going to keep talking about this as we go through the book of Acts. Same thing with the temple. The temple was done at the cross when the veil was rent in two. But folks, they didn't know this yet. They do not know this yet. And we're going to see uh, more evidence of them doing stuff around the temple in chapter 3 next week. They didn't need to do that, but they didn't know it yet. God wasn't mad at them. It just hasn't been revealed yet. But you know what you can't do? You can't go to these passages and then act like Hebrew roots junk is okay because look what they were doing then. No, God hadn't revealed it yet. Okay? They also weren't going to Gentiles. So does that mean we're done going to Gentiles because they weren't going to Gentiles in chapter 2 as all Jews? No. God revealed later, and so now we know, and now we're accountable. So uh, make sure, and you know, I hate to use this term, it's called rightly dividing the Scriptures. Okay? I know the dispensationalists have butchered that term and perverted it badly, but uh, there is a way you can use that term correctly. So uh, where were we? We are in um, verse 12. All right, so verse 12. It says, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one another, What meaneth this? We're referring to the speaking in other tongues. Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Now people often use this as precedent to justify crazy behavior in meetings. And they thought Peter and them was drunk. You know, y'all get upset at these folks and they get filled with the Holy Ghost, you know, barking like dogs and, you know, women screaming, all that kind of stuff. I thought Peter was drunk too. You know, you never know until you get under the glory spout. You know, they, you, know you start acting funny yourself. No, I, I, now listen, I don't doubt that they, there probably wasn't some excitement going on. When they realized what was going on, I don't doubt there was some excitement, you know, and, or maybe even out of ordinary behavior a little bit. You know, but at the same time, you know, these people are mocking. And typically when people mock, they exaggerate. Okay, they typically exaggerate quite a bit. And so I don't think they were acting like they were drunk. Now, they were probably really happy, you know, and I guess some people, they get kind of happy sometimes when they're drunk. I don't know. I haven't been there before. But, you know, maybe that was part of it. But either way, you know, watch, watch when people do that. But verse 14, but Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said to them, ye men of Judea. And all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these be not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. I mean, it's only 9 a.m. I ain't drinking yet. You know, that's people say sometimes. I've heard that joke before. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Okay? Now, the apostles constantly used the Old Testament to prove that what they were doing was of God and biblical, especially when they're preaching to Jews. They're letting these people know. 
everything that's going on here, this is according to the Bible. We're really going to see that next week in chapter 3. We are doing what the Bible commands. We are following the law in obeying Jesus Christ and doing these things. And he said, what you are seeing right now, because folks, again, we are not going to conjure this event up again. This was a major event right now. This was something that was prophesied by Joel. And he goes on verse 17. He's quoting Joel. We're not going to go back and look at it, but he's quoting Joel. It says that it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. And always remember too, when they're quoting Old Testament, it doesn't mean they were still looking for it to come in the future. No, they're just quoting the Old Testament. And if they're saying it happened, it happened. That's going to be important too for next week. I got, I'm struggling. I'm ahead of my sermons because I can't next week. And I'm wanting to preach chapter 3 too because a lot of stuff goes together in there. But it says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I believe what it's doing here in this passage is it's summarizing the age or an era that we are in right now. It's prophesying of a day that's going to come. God's saying, hey, there's a day that's going to come and where I'm going to pour my spirit on all flesh. Right there is a prophecy that he's going to the Gentiles too because aren't they not flesh also? Again, they don't, they don't fully understand this yet. But he, but he said, you know what? I'm going to pour out my spirit. I mean, you're going to have, see visions. You're going to dream dreams. You're going to prophesy. You're going to do all these great things. And that's exactly what's happening during this time. And then it also mentions there in Joel how the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great notable day of the Lord come. There's a lot of Old Testament references to that day of the Lord, and we're still looking for that, aren't we? And so, I've, and I think it's very clear from the book of Revelation that the day of the Lord, I mean, it's going to come after the sixth seal where the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood. And folks, what happens after the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood? That's immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus Christ is coming back. So understand, we are in this era that started, or if I may use the term dispensation, all right, that's what some people would probably call it. I mean, it's like they entered a new dispensation right here. They enter, or a new era, if that's what you mean by it. That's not the way, best way we should put it, but they entered a new era. God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. That's happened. The Holy Spirit has not gone away. Nothing has changed. And you know what? This era that we are in, we are going to be in it. It's the same one they're in until the sun has turned to darkness and the moon has turned to blood. And the day of the Lord comes. You know what we could call this era we're in? We could call it the day of salvation. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, quoting Old Testament, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We don't have time to go back to the Old Testament, but he said that to Israel. 
That was a prophecy to Israel. Paul used that verse to the Corinthians. And you know what he said? Now is that accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. You know when Israel is supposed to get saved? Now? Then? Now is their day of salvation. And when Jesus Christ returns, folks, don't get me going on Romans 11. I've got to save that for next week. Okay? You know, Acts 3 is what clears up Romans 11. Romans 11 is crystal clear if you will actually go and look at Acts 3 and what Peter was preaching to the Jews. People would understand it. We're going to cover that next week. And I mean, it's enough that it'll, it'll, it'll spin the head of any dispensationalist. And we don't, we don't have time to talk about that. But we're in that era, all right? We're in that time. And that's what Peter is preaching right now. And he's like, this is it, folks. We've entered it. It was prophesied by Joel. We're here. And you know what? Today, we're still in that same time period that Peter, that was, that began on this day. And we're going to be in it till the day of the Lord. Until the rapture, Jesus Christ returns. And so, uh, what, we, what I want to do now, I want to look at Peter's sermon, the rest of it, and understand who he's talking to and what he's preaching to them. Now, I covered a lot of this a while back. I think it was a message about national repentance. And we're going to talk more about that because it needs to be repeated. A lot of people do not understand this. So there's a lot of confusion from Acts chapter 2. Uh, we'll talk more about it in chapter 3 because he does the exact same thing in chapter 3. But I really want to spend time on this because it's important that we get this. What Peter is, uh, So, again... We are always going to these stories and making personal application. Again, that's fine. You are not wrong if you do that. If you hear a preacher next week, get up and make personal application about something from Acts chapter 2. He's not wrong in doing that, but always make sure you know what the primary application is. What the, why was Peter preaching what he's preaching? Why is Peter saying what he's saying? It's very important that we get that. Because a lot of people, they, you know, there's people out there that call themselves Acts 2.38 Christians. Have you ever heard anybody call themselves an Acts 2.38 Christian? What does that mean? It means I, that, I believe you need to repent and be baptized to get saved. And it just shows they don't understand the Bible. And then you have hyper-dispensationalists who they just look at that and be like, well, you know, this was a transitional time. And during this time, they were supposed to be baptized. And it wasn't until the Apostle Paul came along with the gospel, the grace of God, where it taught salvation without baptism. John Nelson Darby, C.I. Schofield, Larkin, those guys have done so much damage to Christianity and to the Baptist world. Don't get me going on that stuff. I'm trying not to chase rabbits tonight, but I I got a lot of notes up here. I got a lot I want to cover. But let's look at this. So let's look at the sermon, because what Peter is preaching here is not identical to to what you and I would preach out in, out in this community when we're trying to get people saved. It's not identical. And so, uh, he's speaking to a nation as a whole, not just individual residents of Jerusalem. He's preaching to Jews from all over the world who were a part of the covenant, who claimed to be of Israel even though they were dwelling in other places. And so we got to keep that in mind. So in verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands 
have crucified and slain. Okay, now we're called anti-Semitic if we say the Jews did it. Peter said it right there to them. They did it. Okay, and so just like we as Americans are guilty of butchering babies, now as individuals, we're not, right? But the thing is, if God judges our nation because we butcher babies, do we get to claim exemption from that? No, because our nation has not repented, has it? Okay, now we've repented, okay, you know, and we're crying out to God like Daniel. Did Daniel not repent for Israel? Daniel repented for Israel. But did Israel repent? No, they did not. And so you know what God told Daniel after Daniel prayed, asking God to show mercy? You know what God said? Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And God basically told Daniel, they're going to get nailed. You know, you know why? Because they didn't repent. Even though Daniel did, you know what? I, be, and I believe in personal repentance, but I also believe national repentance is important too. And Peter here is not just preaching personal repentance, trying to get individuals into heaven. He's trying to get Israel saved from destruction, physical destruction. We have to understand that. We are not trying to get people saved from American destruction. For one, we don't know for sure what God's going to do, when God's going to do it, how he's going to do it, or if it's even going to be before the rapture. We, we don't know. We are, we're just trying to get personal repentance from these people. Uh, we're not really out there preaching anything political. Okay, We don't usually... Anybody preach about abortion? When we go, I mean, if it comes up, I'll talk about it. But you know, I, I do believe that's something our country needs to repent of. And, and we're not there yet, folks. I don't care what happens with the Supreme Court thing. We're far, we're far from it. But anyway, so verse 24. So it said, You've crucified and slain him, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. And I'd love to spend some time talking about that. We don't have time to talk about that. Uh, We've got to stick with the sub, main subject here. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. So Peter is letting these people know, not only are you guilty of killing Jesus, this Jesus that you killed is the one that was prophesied of in the scriptures. This Jesus that you killed was the one that David wrote about. He said David wasn't writing about himself in Psalms chapter 16. David is buried and his sepulcher is with us to this day. He hasn't ascended on high. It was Jesus. He was talking about himself, that his soul would not be left in hell. Neither the Holy One see corruption which just means his body wouldn't be dead long enough to deteriorate like the rest of our bodies will. 
Okay? And his body would have deteriorated. It would have seen corruption had he been dead long enough. But God raised him up just like he was prophesying. So he's letting the people know that this Jesus that you killed, and by the way, you're still guilty of killing him. He's raised from the dead, and he's the one that's going to sit on the throne of David. And you are, in tr- are all in trouble for what you've done. And he said he's been raised up, and he's like, we're all witnesses. That, that 120 that was there preaching on Pentecost that day, they'd all seen him. They were all witnesses. And I don't have time to talk a whole lot about this, but understand, back then during that time, being an, a witness to something, declaring yourself a witness of something was a very big thing, and it was a very effective thing. Now, why do witnesses not mean much today? Why do they not carry a lot of weight? You know why? Because we don't do anything to false witnesses. And un- folks, now, we still do a little bit if they're under oath. Under oath, somebody can do some time for perjury, but even that isn't enough. You should get whatever, if you bear false witness against somebody, whatever would have been done to them should be done to you. And if, folks, if we did that, a person would be insane to bear false witness. And you know what? You can usually figure it out if somebody's insane. So again, we look at these things sometimes and we, you know, we look at them in our American culture and we think, well, that's no big deal. They're a witness. We have witnesses to things all the time. I mean, go look at, look at Facebook, all the things people are claiming they witness. Let me look, look on social media. I mean, preachers in pulpits will claim they witness things that literally never happened. Or they just got the details wrong, but there's no consequences. You know why? Because our government's corrupt. And you know what? Churches are corrupt too. They do nothing about it. They do, they do nothing about it. But back then, they did stuff about it. So a person would be insane to get up and do something like that. So uh, we, we don't have time to talk a lot about that. But the fact that all these people are eyewitnesses of these things, it meant something back then. These people had no excuse to not listen to them. So verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God, uh, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed uh, forth this, which ye now see, and here, for David is not ascended into heaven, but he, as he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So understand that one that you killed, it's also prophesied that he's going to make his foes, which is you, his footstool. He's telling them. You are in trouble. And so, he's letting this nation know they messed up, they're in trouble. And said, in, in my opinion, I believe that at this point, and probably even many years after this, I think the apostles believed that Israel could still be saved. The nation, physically. I believe that, that they thought that. Okay? But, obviously, it, wasn't, it didn't happen. It was never going to happen. But I don't know that they realized that yet at this point. But anyway, that's another subject. But verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now here's what we've got to get a hold of. Acts 2.38 is more than just being about our spiritual individual salvation. This is about national salvation. So when they asked what they needed to do, 
that wasn't just to take care of their own souls, but to save their nation. And what they all needed to do... Now, here's the thing. You know, what the, you know what that whole nation needed to do? They all needed to get saved. They all needed to believe on Christ. And let me tell you, 100% of the people who believed that day went to heaven. 100% of them. But not everyone got saved. And because not everyone got saved, the nation eventually was destroyed. Uh, 3,000 people got saved that day, but did the nation get saved that day? No. 3,000 people repented that day, but did the nation repent that day? No. Okay, so understand, he's, he's trying to get Israel, he's trying to get these people who had just killed Jesus to not only believe on him, but also to be followers of him and to identify with him through baptism. Why? Because these people are trying to turn their... We've got to turn our nation around. We've got to do something. And you know what? Our country, if it wants to be spared, it needs to do more than just get saved. It, you know, it needs, it needs to get, they need to get saved and they need to quit having abortions. They need to get saved and they need to stop doing wickedness. They need to stop living in fornication. They need to stop committing adultery. They need to stop doing all these things. Otherwise, even if we're saved, God's still going to destroy this place. So this is not teaching... Uh, you know, a faith plus works or even a faith plus baptism in order for your individual soul to go to heaven. This is about people getting, saving their nation. And they needed to believe on Christ. They could be saved, but they also needed to be followers of Christ too. And while many people did do that, the nation didn't. So never use a passage that's about, you know, individual and national repentance don't use that to prove what an individual needs to do to get saved you can take principles from that you know what you should do you should go to paul's writings where he's talking about individuals getting saved or, or go to what jesus said when he's trying to get nicodemus an individual saved or the woman at the well or all these other places but where does everybody want to go where all the pentecostals want to go acts 238 that, that's wrong that's not right it's more than just individual salvation there. And, uh, and so we've got to look at the Scripture and understand what Peter was trying to get accomplished. And I'm not trying to get a nation saved from destruction when I'm witnessing to an individual trying to get them to believe on Christ. I'm trying to get them saved. That's my goal. So I'm not going to bring up this. I'm not even going to talk about baptism. I'm gonna, because that's not what saves an individual. Now, if I do, if I want to really go on a campaign to save this country, I'm going to preach salvation and I'm going to preach some works too. I'm going to really preach some works. I'm going to preach it hard. So, uh, so the repentance that they needed was needed by everyone. And let me tell you, the world needs saving. And if the whole world got saved, then theoretically, revelation wouldn't need to happen. But folks, it's not going to happen. Okay. Theoretically, you know, if everybody got saved, then who's there to destroy? <laughs> you know, when Jesus comes back. So, uh, but at the same time, we're still preaching, trying to save people, trying trying to spare people. Verse forty, and with many other words that he testified and exhort, saying, "Save yourselves from this untoward generation." So here is kind of a plea to individuals here: save yourselves, because this generation is doomed. They were there when Jesus pronounced 
all this doom and destruction on that generation. Peter was there for it. And so as he's, pre- as he's preaching, he's telling, he's calling out the individuals to save yourselves. Now, does this prove we save ourselves right here? I mean, is, you know, is that proof? No, but it is, at the same time, if, you know, I don't need to sit around and, and no individual should sit around and wait and see what the rest of our country does when it comes to getting right with Jesus Christ. You know what they need to do? They say, you know, who cares what this world does? I'm trusting in Christ. I'm calling on him for salvation. And even if our country as a whole does not get saved, thank God individuals can save themselves from this untoward generation. Because let me tell you, we got one. We've definitely got one. There's no doubt about it. And so it says in verse 41, because again, the whole country doesn't have to do it. You know, but those ones who did, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Okay? And let me just throw this in there because which baptism saved them? Which baptism saved them? Was it the water baptism? Because everybody loves to bring that up too. But you know what else nobody wants to talk about? How about in Mark chapter 1 verse 8 where John is, the Baptist is preaching. He said, I indeed baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Mark 1, 8. And then Mark 16, 16. Uh, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. But then they just assume uh, that's about, uh, you know, that's water baptism. Wait a minute. When did Jesus say this? this? He said, he that believeth and is baptized, the same time we see Acts 1, 5, where Jesus said, for John truly baptized with water, but implying we got a different kind of baptism coming. But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And who baptized him with the Holy Ghost? Jesus did that. And everyone who believes on him gets baptized with the Holy Ghost. Everybody who is saved has been baptized by Jesus Christ with the Holy Ghost. And being baptized with the Holy Ghost does not mean you start gibbering and doing all that. All right, That's another weird Pentecostal thing. But water baptism is something that we do to publicly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. But the water baptism does not save anybody. I believe the water baptism is good. I believe that's obedient. But it is not necessary for salvation. The Jesus baptism, however, 100% necessary. Yes, you must be baptized by Jesus with the Holy Ghost, not necessarily with water. That's a different baptism that represents the baptism that Jesus did for us. So uh, always use Mark 1.8 and Acts 1.5 whenever people want to try to make uh, baptism a part of salvation. I'll just tell them, yeah, I believe that too. Just not water baptism, Jesus baptism. Because how else would you get to Jesus baptism? You, you only get it through faith. So verse 42, And when they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Okay, now, wish I could spend a lot of time on this. Why did they get to see all those miracles and we don't? We need to have an all night prayer meeting, all get in one accord in one place. Maybe we'll see some miracles. All right. Well, here's here's the thing. First off, you know, who says that these things never do happen? You know, who says there's never miracles? You know, the thing is, they just don't happen according to our will and our time. You know, I still think God does miracles. I just can't tell you when he's going to do it, where he's going to do it, how he's going to do it, or even if he's going to do it. He doesn't do these things according to my will. In fact, even this thing that happened here, they didn't conjure it up. Jesus told me, you just go wait and wait for it to come. 
And sure enough, it came. And then, you know what? In His will and His time, He gave them the ability to do all these miracles. And they did them. That's not enough for me. I want to see miracles now. Well, you know what? You're not the one running this thing. You're not the one running the show. It ought to be enough that the Bible says it happened. You know, we have the record, which is what the apostles went on about over and over again. Here's the record. We're witnesses. And why do you feel like you need to tempt God and demand he do signs? You sound like a Jew. Requiring a sign? Really, you're going to require a sign like the Jews? I'd rather not see a miracle than have somebody call me that. But anyway, <laughs> you know, why isn't the Bible enough for you? Hey, why isn't the Bible enough for you? So verse 44, And all that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house that eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor uh, with all the people and the Lord added the church daily such as should be saved. And for people who are trying to use Acts, the beginning of Acts 2 as a blueprint, nobody wants to use the end of Acts 2 as a blueprint. Right, who wants to sell all the stuff we have and just pull it all together? And is, is that what God's trying to get us to do right here? No. Okay, now let me ask you, why did they do it then? Well, for one, I think they wanted to. But second of all, I mean, think, think about this. God did want them getting the gospel in the whole world. And you know what? If we, and I don't know that they knew this. I don't think they did know this. Maybe the Holy Spirit led them to do this because of the fact that in a matter of less than 40 years, all that was going to be gone anyway. So, you know, what, I mean, if you knew everything you had was going to be destroyed next year, what would you do? You know, if you had that inside knowledge, I'd put my house in the market. I'm not going to get much for it after, you know, whoever takes over. I might as well sell it now. And so think about it. They went and they sold everything they had. They used it for the work of the Lord. Forty years later, it was gone anyway. But you know what? The rewards for what they did, eternal. So, you know, what? it may have been of God that they did that. But that doesn't mean that's what we should be doing. That is not what we've been called to do. The Apostle Paul gives no such instruction for anything like that in any of his writings. But that, that's just what they did in that day during that time. And it turns out it was a pretty good deal. Because uh, I guarantee their price was way better in 30 A.D. than it was in 71 A.D. Nobody would have wanted it. So we have clearly entered into a near, new era. And it's very misleading to act like the church was started here at Pentecost. Because there is no doubt, Peter, he wasn't preaching to a bunch of Gentiles. He was preaching to Jews from all over the world. And he considered himself to be a part of these people. He considered them, you know, he considered himself a part of his. You know, go tell the apostles that they changed religions. Go tell, you know, go tell them that. Yeah, you guys changed religions. You guys quit being Jews. Wait a minute. No, we were obedient to Moses. We'll see that next week. They didn't start a new religion. No, God came along and reformed their religion. That's what took place, and it started that day. And you know what? There was, what God did during this time is he separated the sheep from the goats. And you know what those goats went and did? You know, they started what today they're calling Judaism, 
but what John called the synagogue of Satan. That's, that's what they started, a new religion. The Jews who apostatized, the Jews who fell away, the Jews who drew back into perdition they, and became antichrist. That, that is what happened. Don't, yeah, yeah. Don't try to tell me Peter and the disciples started a new religion. No, they continued in their faith. They continued in their religion and they followed the Lord and did what they were supposed to. The others fell away. Branches broke off. We'll say more about that next week. So with that, let's pray dear Lord. I pray this message was a help. And Lord, we do uh, thank you so much for all that you've done. Lord, I'm thankful to be living uh, in this era that we're in right now, Lord. And uh, you've been so good to us. And uh, Lord, we, I just pray you'll help us to use the scriptures like we're supposed to. I pray we'll always make life application, but help us to never uh, forget what these things were originally about. And I pray you'll help us to use them properly and in their context as we uh, study them. In your name we pray. Amen.